Right. Thank you all so much for being here this morning. We've been in the book of Acts. Uh, we thought we could go through the book of Acts in a couple months, and then we decided we may need to go a little bit longer because God is doing so much in the book of Acts that we think pertains to exactly where we're at as a church. So this morning, Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. If you've been with us at Shalford before, we end our service in a very particular, very unique way. We don't dismiss you. What do we say when we're done? We say, Shalford, you are sent. This morning, I want to look at why we say that. Why do we say you are sent? What does that mean? What are we sending you to go do? What are we, why are we sending you? What's our, what's our motivation for saying that? So in Acts chapter 8, this morning, we're going to look at why do we say you were sent. And we're going to see what happens. Uh, Pastor Al preached last week on Stephen. And uh, Acts chapter 7 is basically one big long sermon from Stephen. He's on trial. And basically the Jews came to Stephen and said, look, uh, they, they started sowing these lies of saying, hey, Stephen said the temple doesn't matter. Stephen said the synagogue doesn't matter. Stephen said, and so they start spreading all these lies. Stephen said Moses was just a liar. Stephen, and so they start spreading these lies about Stephen, spreading this discord about who Stephen was. And so Stephen gets put on trial. So this is what Stephen does. He stands up and he tells them the story of God. And I bet they agreed with most of it until he got to the end. Because when he got to the end, he said, then God sent Jesus and you crucified him. So he stands up, knowing his life is on the line, bears witness to who Jesus is, and they put him to death. And he becomes the first Christian martyr. And, and what's really unique is that in Acts 1.8, Al kind of told us that's the outline for the whole book of Acts. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that word witness is a word martyreo. You don't have to be a Greek scholar, and I'm certainly not, to hear the word martyr in that word. So the Greek word for witness is martyreo. So the word witness in Greek eventually becomes our word for martyr. What an interesting translation of words. That Stephen, just bearing witness, was so solid in his witness to who Jesus was that he eventually became martyr, was put to death because of what he believed. So what happened to the church after that? That's where we're at in Acts chapter 8. Stephen had just been put to death. And then Acts chapter 8, verse 1 is where we pick up. And here's what it says. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. We're gonna stop at verse four today. We're only gonna cover these four verses in the book of Acts because they are a pivotal moment in the movement of the gospel. Because that's what we've been talking about, right? We've been talking about how does the gospel move? If you go back to Acts 1.8, remember Jesus said, you're going to be, you will be my witnesses. This is going to happen in Jerusalem. And they could probably conceive of that because they were already there. And then he said, in Judea and Samaria, in the wider regions. And then he said, to the ends of the earth, as far as you can imagine. And that gospel has been continually spreading now for over 2,000 years. And now has reached us on the other side of the world. And Acts 8 is where the gospel begins to spread into Judea and Samaria because it says right there in verse one, they were all, because of persecution, they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So if you're trying to chart the book of Acts, 
Acts 8 is kind of a a new header in the outline. It's a new point where the gospel was moving in Jerusalem. Now it begins to be spread and there's new challenges. There's new people groups. There's new kinds of people coming to know Jesus through the work of the early church. So that's what's happening in Acts 8. And we've seen throughout the whole book of Acts that there's growing persecution. There's increasing hostility, right? When the apostles first started teaching and preaching, uh, the, the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders, they didn't really know what to do with them. So they kind of brought him in, heard him out, and they said, look, you got to stop. Then they released him. Then they bring him in again, and they give him a warning. Listen, if you don't stop, we're going to be forced to do something. Then they bring him in, and and at the end of Acts chapter 4, we see that they actually beat them. And now here in Acts chapter 7, there was actually a death. So this hostility has just been growing, 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 leading to death. And now we have this figure, Saul, as we see later comes to know Christ, then is referred to as Paul for the rest of the New Testament and is a phenomenal church planter. This Jewish leader at the time, Saul, is heading up all this persecution. And this persecution actually grows to the point where he's going, he's so deliberate, he's going from house to house looking for men and women that he can haul off to prison. And as I read that, look, I I thought this, I thought when we, we gather in groups and homes, we have small groups, gospel communities, we meet in homes. When we meet in homes, our biggest worry for us was childcare. What are we going to do with all the kids, right? That's our home group worry. First century home group worry, Acts chapter 8, was for their lives. They were worried for their lives. They knew persecution was coming. They knew what they were doing was unacceptable in the eyes of the current leadership. And they continued to do it anyway to the fact where when the persecution came, they were forced to leave their homes and scatter. They were forced to scatter throughout the surrounding regions that they could not stay in Jerusalem any longer. But verse 4 tells us something so interesting that says that those who were scattered went about preaching the word. My first question this morning is, why? If you're getting persecuted for something, why, when you have to flee that persecution, would you continue doing the one thing that brought it about in the first place? They just got in trouble. One of their own just got killed. They were just persecuted. They were just imprisoned for preaching the gospel. So what did they do when they were scattered? Well, naturally, they went about continuing to preach the gospel. Why? So my first question this morning is why? My second question we're going to get to later is how? Why did they continue to preach the gospel and how did they continue to preach the gospel? So first, I want to ask, why would they respond to persecution by continuing to do what brought it about? Why would they respond? You know, I don't know about you, but if you have kids or if you do have kids, uh, my kids, you wonder when they get in trouble why they keep doing the same thing and we're laughing and we know this is such a reality, right? And I have to remind myself that I'm dealing a lot of times with symptoms, but the real issue is this heart of disobedience and rebellion that they can't obey. The last thing I want to do is stop and pray and realize, okay, they're, I mean, they're unbelievers. They're not Christians, right? They need to come to know Jesus. They can't obey It's funny, you make your kid try to obey and then you come to church and we sing about grace all the time and it's like, okay, I've got to remember, my kids need that. But I mean, how many times could you tell a two-year-old, a four-year-old, a six-year-old, an eight-year-old, stop? I mean, I was just telling one of our kids this morning, I need you to turn it around. I I need you to stop. We've told you this over, stop, stop, stop doing that, stop doing that. 
So our daughter has a, I call it her rule for life. I said, your rule for all of life is if it's not yours, don't touch it. If it's not yours, don't touch it, right? And so we talk about that over and over, but guess what? I've got to keep repeating the rule. Why, if she knows she's going to get in trouble, will she keep doing the same thing? Right? You would think the, the, the punishment would eventually outweigh. I think the reason she does that is the same reason these believers continue to spread the gospel. I believe every action of our life is determined by what we most treasure. I think our lives are oriented by whatever our highest treasure is. So there may be a question of what you will live for, but there is no question for why you will live for it. We all live for different things, right? I was looking back, Father's Day posts, and some guys, you know, I saw somebody say, these three boys are my why. So, I mean, treasure in his, in his kids, that's not a bad treasure, right? But why did this early church do what they were doing? I believe it's because we all live for our highest treasure. So whatever in life you choose to live for, whatever your goals, whatever your dreams, whatever your aspirations, whatever your achievements, whatever your failures, whatever your greatest hopes are, all comes from your highest treasure. Why? Why is that the case? Why is it that whatever we most treasure orients all the rest of our life? What? I think, let's look at some examples. Look at your life's direction, where you're headed, your future plans. Look at your source of identity, who you are and who you wanna be. How you wanna be perceived, that's a big question. How you wanna be known by others. What about this word purpose? What's your purpose? What's your meaning in life? What did did God, or if you don't believe in God, what did this higher power, what are you here for? What's your reason for living? All these things are determined by our highest treasure because our treasure controls our heart. This is a biblical teaching. Our treasure controls our heart. Matthew 6, 21, Jesus says this, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our heart follows our treasure. So whatever we most value, whatever we most love, whatever we think is the most important thing, our heart's gonna follow it. And then wherever our heart's going, that sets our direction and our decisions in life. So you have treasure, it kind of works as a treasure chest right here. There's treasure, there's your heart, and then there's your decisions, your daily decisions, and they flow in that order. So whatever in life we think this is most important, what's your treasure? What's your treasure? What's most valuable to you in life? I think we all, if we get down to it, maybe have a different answer. Comfort, maybe. I mean, we, we got to really push down in our hearts if we're going to genuinely answer that because we might have some short-term goals, but if we really dig down deep, those short-term goals might just be kind of surface level compared to what's really in our hearts. Like we may say, I just want to graduate college. I mean, that would be unbelievable, but why do you want to graduate college? But why do you want that job? But why do you want to live there? But why do you feel like you need to be in a relationship? I mean, like, why is that your treasure right now? Underneath all that, is it acceptance? Is it that you're longing so bad that you just want someone to accept you? 
Is it vengeance? Are you trying to prove somebody wrong and vindicate yourself? I mean, what's your treasure in life? What's the one thing, if you had it, everything else you think would be solved? Like if you win the lottery and all of a sudden money wasn't an issue, it's often we think that that would solve every problem in our life. But I think we'd all get pretty bored if we never had to do anything else for the rest of our lives. The fact is, you would still sense all sorts of discontentment in your heart. What's your treasure? Because wherever you lay your treasure, your heart's going after it. Whatever you have your eyes on, your heart's following. And then the heart is the seat of who we are. Everything we do, everything we think, every decision we make is determined by what we most love and where our heart's guiding us. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13, 44, Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. This is an explanation for why these believers in Acts 8 are acting the way they are. Because they were willing to forsake everything else because they had found such a treasure that in their joy they sold everything else so that they could have that treasure. What did they sell? Their homes. They were scattered from their homes and where they lived. They left their jobs. They probably left relationships. I mean, they sold everything. And they were scattered. Why? Because they so believed in the treasure of the gospel that they were willing to sell everything else. Here's what John Piper says about that passage in Matthew 13. He says, We measure the worth of a hidden treasure by what we will gladly sell to buy it. What will you gladly sell to buy your treasure? What are you willing to give up for your treasure? Here's an example. Kids, again. Because kids are a sacrifice, right? I don't think anybody would say raising kids is easy. Or or college. College is fun, but at the end of the day, it's hard. And there's independence, but there's class, and there's fun, but there's money and loans, and you've got to provide for yourself, and you've got to work, but you've also got to go to class and get good grades. And, but why are you putting yourself through college like that if it's difficult? Why are you putting yourself through the difficulty of raising kids? Well, you, we clearly think there's some joy in that, right? I mean, kids are, parenting kids is difficult but we clearly think there's some greater joy that comes from being able to raise kids, right? And have them in our lives and love them and them love us back. There's a greater joy that we can see through the difficulty of what's right in front of us. And that's what happens here in Acts chapter eight, that these believers had found a hidden treasure in a field, sold everything else so that they could go after that treasure of the gospel. They were, their treasure was Jesus. So remember what we said, if, if all of our life we live for our highest treasure. Then these believers in Acts 8 had their highest treasure as Jesus Christ himself. So here's a story of a missionary named Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott has some really, really famous words that he wrote in October of 1949. Here's what Jim Elliott said in his personal journal. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Did you follow the logic of that? You're not a fool if you give up something that you can't keep anyways, in order to gain something that there's no way you could lose. It's actually a really wise act, not a foolish one at all. 
I've tried all week to flip that statement on its head. And how, how could you say it backwards? Well, you could say something like, he is foolish who wants to keep something that you could lose while you're giving up something you could never lose. Jim Elliott said it like this. He's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And guess what? Just six short years later, in January of 1956, Jim Elliott gave up something that he knew he could never keep. Jim Elliott was pressed from a very young age to carry the gospel to people who had never heard it. So he set his eyes on South American tribes in the jungle that people had never interacted with. So him and four other, three other men, all four of them, tried for months and months to build relationships with the Aka Indians in Ecuador. And they would fly their plane. One of them was a pilot and they would drop things off and they were just trying to build this relationship, learn language, learn culture of what they could from a distance. But they knew that there was hostility and in, October, in January of 1956, in one of their first interactions with this tribe, they killed all four men, Jim Elliott and his three missionary partners. Jim Elliott lived in January of 1956, what he wrote in October of 1949. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliott's life decisions to die the young age of 27 or 28 was because he knew where his treasure was. The decisions of these believers in Acts chapter 8 to see persecution and not forsake their faith, not turn on their faith, not ignore their faith, but press deeper into it was because they knew where their treasure was. They knew where their treasure was. So here's the call for us today. We have to evaluate our treasures. What are we treasuring? Where is our heart set? Because remember the question for the whole book of Acts. How does the gospel move? In this passage, it moves through believers who have their treasure set on Jesus. So that they're willing to sell everything else to buy that treasure. And for some of them, that meant they were willing to embrace persecution. They were willing to embrace leaving everything they'd ever known. They were willing to embrace even death because they were so committed to remain faithful to Jesus. How does the gospel move? Well, the gospel can't move through us until it's moved in us. And the gospel had moved in these believers, but that's only our first question is why. The second question is how. So if they had their treasure set on Jesus, you may be saying, I, I feel like I love Jesus. I think I love Jesus. You know, I, I need to keep evaluating, yes, but okay, let's say I'm willing to do that. Let's say my heart's in that place. How in the world does this happen? I want you to notice <clears throat> Acts chapter eight, verse four. Acts uses a lot of names, right? We've read about Peter, we've read about the apostles, we've read about Saul, we've read about Stephen. I mean, he, he's, he's very particular about names. When Luke knows the names, he's probably gonna give them. <clears throat> but look at what he says in verse four. Who is it that went about preaching when they were scattered? There's no names. It just says those who were scattered went about preaching. Gives you no names. Why? why? Why does Luke not give us names there? Because Luke is trying to emphasize that the spread of the gospel happens when ordinary believers have their treasure set on the extraordinary Savior. The gospel does not move through people who think they're the primary point, who think that they have to shine as strong enough and big enough and able enough. That's not who the gospel moves through. The gospel moves through people who realize I'm nothing. I need the amazing grace we sang about. 
I'm imperfect, inadequate, I'm insufficient, I don't have enough money, I don't have enough talent, I don't have enough ability, but guess what? I love the one who's perfect in every possible way. So there's no names of the people who are spreading the gospel. Jesus said, the outline of Acts is three things. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, you're going to be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria. The people that fulfilled that second point, we don't even know their names. We don't even know their names. They were ordinary people, absolutely ordinary in every way, except for the fact that they had set their hope, set their treasure on an extraordinary savior. So how does the gospel move forward? Ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. Ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. See, this mission was a mission for everyday believers to carry the gospel. This is why I started the sermon by saying, what do we say at the end? We say, you are sent. What does that mean? It means that we believe the greatest mission opportunity we have at Shalford is to send all of you on a seven-day mission trip every single week. Nothing about your life is an accident. God has sent you there. You know, when you first get your license and your parents say, I need you to go to the store and I need you to get this, 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 and this. If you come back with none of those and you come back with a whole list of other things you could think of to get, that would help you. What are your parents going to say? I sent you to get eggs and bread and milk so that we can make French toast and drink milk when the snow comes and we're all snowed in, right? They say, I sent you for this purpose. Being sent implies a specific purpose. I mean, I, I picture an arrow being pulled back, and when you see an archer shoot an arrow, that intentionally and specifically at such a small point, you think, really, you could say they sent that arrow across a certain distance, and it hit right in a target. I mean, it was sent on purpose. Do you realize, if you know Jesus, God has sent you on purpose where you live, where you work, where you play. He has sent you into every relationship you have for his purposes. That's why at Shalford, one of our core values is that you live sent. There's never a waking moment of our lives when we are not on mission for Jesus. And I think for some of us, that, that might freak us out because we go, hey, I need to pull back and rest. I need time with my family and my kids. I, I mean, I need time to be with Jesus, not just try to do these things, right? Like I can't just say I'm on mission all the time. When am I gonna, re- when am I gonna pull back? When am I gonna like revive, rejuvenate? When am I gonna sleep? That's not what I'm saying. I think what we need to look at is Psalm 67 again that we prayed through earlier. These are two sides of the same coin as we, See God as he blesses us, as he pours out his grace on us. That always works by going through us so that the nations would know his salvation. So why did the gospel move? Because they so treasured Jesus that they were willing to lose anything for it. They were willing to lose anything for the spread of the gospel. How did the gospel move? Through ordinary people. Our strategy as a church is to equip all of you to be everyday missionaries. We really ought to measure our church more by our sending capacity than our seating capacity. I've heard that from a pastor in North Carolina that I got to sit under. He said, 
when you begin to look at the web of relationships you all have, you all know exponentially more people than we could ever fit in this room. You realize that? And everywhere you go, you carry the gospel with you. And so this is great, and I hope every time we come, we're encouraged, and we get to fly high the flag of the gospel. We get to talk about God's word. We get to worship. But you need to know we can never measure our impact only by what happens in this room, in this building, on this campus. Never. Our greatest outreach opportunities are not when we do a family night and have 350 people. That's awesome. But I got to let you know that was tiring, and that cost a lot of money. It costs nothing for you to be friendly to your neighbors. It costs nothing for you to hear someone's story at Starbucks. It costs nothing for you to begin to carry the gospel with you intentionally every single place you go. Why? Because God's already sent you there. Ministry runs on the tracks of relationships. And your webs of relationships are far more powerful, far bigger than anything we could ever fit in this room. That's why our strategy is to say, let's come in, let's disciple one another, let's love one another. Hey, how's this church gonna grow? That's a great question. By all of us loving Jesus so much that everywhere we go, we see ourselves as sent there on purpose. And here's, here's a really crazy notion. You don't need Al or I to share the gospel with somebody. In fact, I would venture to say some of you are way better at sharing the gospel than I am. You don't need me to do that. You don't have to say like, hey, let's wait and talk to the pastor. Like, hey, you should come hear the preaching. Guess what? This word preaching means right here. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Don't think preaching like what I'm doing. It's not that everybody went out and set up a, a table and got out the word and had notes and went like, all right, listen up. I got a sermon. Here's 20 minutes. This word preaching is where we get our word evangelism. And if I told you the word... I. I don't know how many Greek words you get to use in one sermon without sounding like a nerd, I don't know, but euangelizomai, evangelism. So, so don't think this when you hear preaching. Uh, think, think another stool right here, sipping tea, drinking coffee. Th think that when you hear the word preaching. So everyone goes around and begins to share the gospel, begins to do evangelism, tell people the good news. And you say, Johnny, what does that look like? Tell them your story. Because after all, we're called to be a witness. And what does a witness do? Provides a first-hand account. If you know Jesus, you can provide a first-hand account of how amazing and incredible he is. The gospel spreads through ordinary people who have Jesus as their highest treasure. And you just need to know my card's full on the table. That's my strategy for leading this church. That's Al's strategy for leading this church. That's Matthew's strategy for leading this church. It's not that we think we can do it all and you, gotta, you guys just work on gathering everybody and phew, we'll take care of the good stuff. I was just having a conversation with Ann this morning about some ministry opportunities and we were saying, how can we do this? And we had to go back to some of these values of saying, what if we could equip the people and you could take it outside the walls and your impact could be so much greater than how limited we would be if we only ever did ministry when we could all work it out in our schedules and be here at church. We would be so limited. If they viewed like that in Acts 8, the church would have never spread beyond Jerusalem. Because did you notice what it said in Acts 8.1? They were all scatter, scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So what would have happened if they scattered and they said, but, but my pastor's in Jerusalem. 
I mean, I'm in Judea and Samaria, but my past, I, the pastor's back here. Hey, travel with me these some miles to go to Jerusalem. Come to church with me. Would you do that? And here's what's really cool. I, I want you to track with us in the weeks to come because we're going to get to Acts 11 soon. And we're going to see that because of the persecution of Stephen, these believers spread as far as Antioch. And you say, why does that matter? What happened at Antioch? Well, later when Saul comes to know Jesus, starts to be referred to as Paul. Paul's in the church at Antioch and the Holy Spirit speaks to the church at Antioch and says, set apart for me, Paul, for the purposes I have for him so that I can send him out. So it says the church laid hands on him and prayed over him and the church sent him out. Do you track with me the multiplication that just happened? Because there was persecution in Jerusalem, believers spread. Who? We don't have their names. They were just ordinary folks just telling people about Jesus. And those people spread as far as Antioch. And then a church was planted there in Antioch. And that church grew up and became mature. And they realized, hey, we were planted because somebody was sent. So we better be about sending too. So they were probably playing, praying Luke 10 too, just like we do. Jesus, raise up laborers for the harvest because we know this gospel's got to keep going to the ends of the earth. So Jesus raised up people. Holy Spirit called people out to be raised up. And the Spirit whispers, what about Paul? Then what happened with Paul? Paul said, my goal is to name Christ where he's not yet been named to the ends of the earth. The gospel moves through churches that hold things with an open hand and are willing to send. Jerusalem sent to Judea and Samaria. Judea and Samaria sent to the ends of the earth. Where will we send from Shaliford? And I'm not just talking about us sending on a mission trip or sending a church plant and we get to check a box. I'm talking about us living sent every single day. God has broken my heart over this idea of living sent. We had an opportunity this week to meet some of our neighbors at VBS. How crazy is that? We're meeting all of our neighbors at church. Uh, last summer, Justin and Kristen came and we said, where do you live? And we figured out they lived about five houses down from us. This year at VBS, we meet a couple of families Friday night. They said, we live in your neighborhood. Ironically enough, Kristen introduced them to us. But I've been praying for them. I've been praying for our neighbors I know some of you are so much more faithful to me to pray for your neighbors. Some of you are here because someone in this church invited you to come and be a part of our church. So my prayer is that we would live sent. We would see that where we live, work, and play, Jesus has sent us there on purpose. It's not that a select few professionals are called to the ministry. Everyone is called. The only question is where and how. Where and how. The where question is just where's God put you? Start there. Where has God put you? Live sent there. So as we wrap up, I want to just nail home those two things. We're talking about the movement of the gospel. How did the gospel move? When we have Jesus as our highest treasure. When we sing these songs about the amazing grace of Jesus, our hearts are on fire because we're alive, spiritually alive to what that really means for us. The gospel's not gonna move through us unless it first moves in us. So we're gonna have Jesus as our highest treasure. So for some of you this morning, I wanna invite you to make Jesus your highest treasure. Some of, some of us are trying to order your life around things that 
will soon dissolve like snow. It's going to let you down. You, you, you can't build an identity on some of those things. So this morning, here's an invitation. I want to invite you, come build your life on someone that's never going to leave, never going to forsake you, and he's going to pour out all of his love for you. He already has. Come build your life on Jesus. And as we build our lives on Jesus, I'm praying that we would live sent. So during this invitation, here's the really practical application. I want you to pray that God would put real names on your heart. Names of neighbors and coworkers. Names of people that you know from places you frequent, grocery stores and Starbucks. Names of friends, family members. Behind every name is a story. And we say all the time, what's your story? And that's one of the easiest ways you can start living sent this week. Is ask some of those people, what's your story? What's your story? So Jay's going to come back up and we're going to sing some more. And I'm praying that <clears throat> as he comes up and as we get ready to sing, God's going to put names on our hearts. God's going to put on our hearts the burden to live sent. Nothing about your life is an accident. Right? Nothing's an accident. God has put you where he's put you so that you could make him known to the people around you. That you could make a difference. And you, you can make far more of a difference out there than we can make inside these walls. So let's pray. Father, we love you. We love that, God, this whole concept of sending really started with you because you sent Jesus. You sent Jesus at just the right time to do just the right thing so we could come to know you. And then, Jesus, you turn around, and in John 20, 21, you say, just as the Father has sent me, so I send you. So, God, living sent, being sent, sending, sending people to plant churches, sending people to be missionaries is a gospel issue, God. So, Father, would you please shine light in our hearts so that we love you more today, so that we depend more on the gospel today. And, God, as we bask in the glory of your grace, help us to remember that then we're called to turn around and give that grace to others. Father, we want to take some time this morning and give thanks to the people in our lives that if we know Jesus, somebody had to tell us about him. So God, I want to thank you this morning for my parents. I want to thank you for Rick Young. I want to thank you for Pastor Johnny Hunt who shared the gospel with me faithfully for 14 years before I came to know Jesus. God, thank you for sending people into my life to tell me about Jesus when I didn't ask for them to come and I didn't ask for them to tell me about Jesus. But you sent them to me. God, thank you for Hannah Martin who brought Brie Gilstrap who brought Carrie to church so that she could hear about Jesus. Now thank you God that you've sent me into the life of Cece and Jonathan and Corinthians so that they can know about Jesus. We all hear about Jesus because somebody was sent into our life to tell us about him. 
Now, God, who are we sent to to tell about Jesus? We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray.